Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, so glad to have you with us on the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And just a little bit of housekeeping before we dig into our, what I think is a very good first martini. Uh, Jim, uh, it's Thanksgiving week, so our schedule is going to look a little bit different. We talked about this yesterday. On Thursday will be our brand new Things We're Politically Thankful For episode of the Three Martini Lunch. And then on Friday, it's our annual Black Friday gift special in which Jim and I each select three things that we want to give either to individual uh, politically related people or perhaps groups of people as uh, the situation might be. So uh, tomorrow, however, is what they call in sports a travel day. So uh, tomorrow we'll be having a best of. It's our analysis of the 2022 midterm elections. All right, on to our good martini now. And the first and the second are both related to the World Cup, which Jim, if you had uh, bet that the three martini lunch would spend two martinis in the same episode on soccer, I would have taken the opposite side of that bet and lost badly. So this is one of the many reasons why I don't bet on sports or anything else, because you just never know uh, what's going to happen. But yesterday, the U.S. tied, but that's not the point. Uh, But in that same pool, apparently... England played Iran. England won the match, and again, that doesn't matter. But what happened with the Iranian team is the good martini. Uh, Each team uh, has its national anthem played before the games, and the Iranian team stood for their anthem, arm around each other's shoulders in in a straight line as they faced their flag. However, they did not sing their national anthem, which apparently is uh, their custom. Uh, And as a result of that, many people speculated, hey, Maybe this is a protest from this team about what's currently happening in Iran with the uh, lack of rights in general for people, certainly the lack of rights for women, and maybe it's a sign of solidarity for the protesters. And you could have been excused for thinking that the soccer team would just kind of let that ambiguous thing hang in the air because you assume they've got family members back there or they might like to return from this trip to Qatar. Uh, but no, the captain went to the press and made it very clear. We could play you the audio, but it's in Farsi, so uh, I might as well just translate it here. He says, we have to accept that conditions in our country are not right and our people are not happy. They should know that we are with them and we support them and we sympathize with them regarding their conditions. Whatever we have is from them and we have to fight. We have to perform the best we can and score goals and represent the people. I hope conditions change as to the expectations of the people. And that was Esan Hashsavi. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Jim, we see all these, I don't know if you want to call it virtue signaling, but uh, people wanting to uh, wear certain things to protest Qatar's uh, treatment of gays. And they think that's this strong stand, a courageous stand, and then until the Qataris say, no, you got to take it off, you're all going to get yellow cards. Oh, okay, sure, whatever you want. Uh, and now the Iranians are probably putting their lives on the line, their families' lives on the line. Perhaps the government could crack down even harder on the protesters. This is one of the most courageous things you'll see in sports. I was going to say, watching this, Greg, left me with three reactions, two a little bit negative or cynical, and one very positive. Not about the Iranians and what they were doing, and the stance of these soccer players making this small but very clear gesture that they stand with the people against the regime, I think it just puts the problems of the average American in perspective. You know, we do have real problems in this country. We have inflation. We have 
minority groups who would say they have been mistreated by authorities, mistreated by cops. But it's we don't have the kind of country where if you speak out against the government, there'll be a knock on the door in the middle of the night and you will disappear and no one will hear about you ever again. Everyone will know the government has taken you away and put you in some sort of hellhole prison uh, or, God forbid, rape you or physically beaten you or something like that. But by and large, you can criticize the U.S. government all you want and at no point will the government come after you. That is not the case in Iran. My second thought was how the regime of Ayatollah Khomeini made very clear from 1979 that they were an implacable enemy of the United States of America with the hostage crisis. And since then, they have chanted death to America, death to the great Satan. They can't make it any clearer. And yet we have administration after administration that has tried to say, look, these guys are reasonable. I'm sure we can work out a deal on nuclear weapons if we just make enough concessions. Now, the great irony, and thankfully, you know, are there Iranians, the average Iranian citizens who agree with their regime's stance on America? Yeah, there are. But there are ones who don't. The average Iranian, particularly if you've ever met any Iranian immigrants, are by and large very positive on the United States. They, there's a reason they come here. There's a reason they thought when they were getting rid of the Shah, they were getting rid of corruption. And that maybe, you know, you can argue that they misjudge Ayatollah Khomeini pretty badly, but they believed that they were going to get fair-minded, non-corrupt religious rulers who would stand up for right and wrong, uh, even if they seemed, you know, pretty hardline. Well, we see how that turned out. They ended up with something along the lines of what the Washington Post would call an austere religious scholar uh, <laughs> in that, uh, you know, infamous obituary. So, the, you know, they've, and then, you know, now for the better part of two you know, generations, they've lived under this and said, this stinks, this is terrible. We hate this. And you see women taking off their headscarves. You see women standing up and saying they want full rights. You see this increasing bristling against us. This is not the first time it happened. It happened in 2009 as well. You would think Americans would say, thank goodness, some of these folks recognize that being ruled by a strict religious autocracy is a bad deal. They realize that having their government be the world's foremost sponsor of terrorism makes the world a more dangerous place and not a better place to live. They're recognizing that they're the ones getting screwed over by everyone else. And they recognize that this all, you know, this the sanctions and other forms of economic punishment could be lifted if the regime would just put aside the dream of a nuclear weapon. There is nothing that is keeping the American people and the Iranian people from being if not, you know, the best of friends than being on much friendlier terms. I suspect you may see this when the U.S. plays Iran. They're in our, they're in our division, right? Yep. Yeah, and so at some point later this week, they're going to play. And we're going to see that. I think you're going to see U.S. players and Iranian players shaking hands at the end of the game, or maybe even embracing. And I hope that there's a message of, hey, Iranian people, we've got no beef with you. In fact, we're hoping you guys succeed. We think you've been mistreated for the better part of 60 years now, or 50 years, I guess. And we want you to have a better future. We want you to have a safer future. And maybe something will come of this. But we keep the Iranian people keep doing what we want them to see. And then various administrations, generally Democrats, look at that and say, oh, we don't want to do that. Oh, it's too risky, too dangerous. Let's, let's go back to the negotiating table in Geneva. They're afraid to come out and say, yes, you should get rid of those leaders. They've been treating you very badly for 50 years. And so like, you know, like these are kind of you know cynical thoughts about this. But what's positive about this is you think about it. Look, as I said, we're not a perfect country. We're a flawed country, even in our foreign policy. You can make a very strong and compelling case that the United States effectively abandoned the Kurds under the Trump administration. You can make a very effective case that the American people, if they, you know, if we didn't, if you can't, don't want to argue we abandoned the entire Afghan nation, then we certainly abandoned our Afghan allies in uh, 2021. 
We've seen times we have not lived up to our values and times we have left our allies in the lurch, people who stuck their neck out for us. And yet somehow, even with all of our mistakes, all of the times we have not lived up to our professed values, people still look at freedom. People still look at democracy and say, hey, you know what? I want that. It has not changed the way people want to live. It has not, you know, it has never made people acquiesce to living under an oppressive theocratic dictatorship. You know, it is so inspiring and it does give you something to be thankful for at this Thanksgiving, this sense that, hey, you know what? Nobody's perfect and America's not perfect, but people look at our system of government and say, hey, I want something like that. And at a time when people are feeling very cynical, that can be very inspiring. Jim, the other thing I think of is, you know, the demographics is destiny. You hear that a lot in American politics, but it's also true in Iran uh, because uh, the younger people and by younger, that 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 line keeps getting older and older. Uh, they're fed up. They're fed up with the uh, the mullahs and the uh, ayatollahs, and they just don't want that anymore. They're fed up with the uh, the way that the country is being run. And not only are they uh, autocratic, they're corrupt. They're hugely corrupt because even when Obama freed up the money uh, from the sanctions, uh, a lot of it back, went back into funding terrorism and in aligning their own pockets. And then the impoverished Iranian people uh, never saw hardly anything in terms of relief from that. But, you know, the, the, the line we keep getting from the Biden administration is, oh, yeah, we, you know, we, we, we want people to have rights, but we can't get too directly involved in the rhetoric here because then they're going to accuse us of, uh, of manufacturing the protest. Well, shock of all shocks, they're already accusing us of manufacturing the protest. And Jim, I'm pretty sure that's what Brezhnev and Andropov and Chernenko and Gorbachev even said about Reagan back in the 80s when he backed Lech Walesa in Poland and, and some of the other uh, folks leading uh, freedom movements in the, in the eastern uh, part of Europe. And so the idea that we should just stay on the sidelines for this only emboldens the regime. It doesn't help the people at all. Yeah, I, you know, if, if this generated good results, it'd be a different story. But we've seen this story before. There's nothing in the past 40 years of the Iranian regime to think, oh, this time they're really moderating. Their efforts to kill American servicemen overseas have really gone down a lot in the last few years. I was glad to see Soleimani turn into a red smear on the side of the road. And there's great opportunity. You know, that, was, that was the stick. Now we can have the carrot. But the carrot should not be offered to the regime. The carrot should be offered to the people to say, look, we stand behind you. We support you. And hopefully this regime is not long for this world, but we'll see how things shake out, Greg. Yeah, exactly. Our administration, unfortunately, seems to be far more eager to resurrect the Obama legacy than uh, help the Iranian people finally get free. Terrible. All right, Jim, on to our second martini now. And uh, yeah, we're doing two martinis on soccer. But like we uh, said at the outset, the Iranian story is less about soccer, but it did give them the stage to make this protest. And I'm not sure where else they would have gotten such a big stage to do it. Uh, but as you report uh, today in the Morning Jolt, uh, the fact that the World Cup is in Qatar or Qatar or Gutter, every time we actually show up somewhere, we have to mm. change the pronunciation. And now, of course, there's protests about the fact that the uh, regime there, which is quite autocratic uh, and engages in slave labor and is, uh, you know, has very strict behavioral policies there, got to host these games. And as we saw with FIFA in the past, they're not exactly on the up and up. They kind of make the IOC, <laughs> I'm not going to say look innocent compared to them, but they're cut from the same cloth, shall we say. Uh, they didn't just pick uh, to have the World Cup 
in Qatar or Qatar, uh, just out of the the whimsy of the best possible place to host this, uh, we assume their pockets got lined somewhere along the way. So once again, just like the IOC going to Beijing or Sochi or uh, some of these other places along the way, uh, these international competitions seem to get sullied because of the corruption of the people running them. I chose to wrote about that in today's morning jolt and that similarity between FIFA and the International Olympic Committee is not only, you know, resonant, it also is kind of a sign of like they're killing the goose that's killing the golden egg. Why do people watch these things? Well, ultimately, they're in the entertainment business, right? Which means you have to feel the thrill of seeing someone uh, do something extraordinary. There's often an element of patriotism or nationalism. Uh, you, you joked at the beginning about how, you know, we're, you know, neither one of us is huge soccer fans, but when it's the World Cup, at least I'm going to pay a little more attention because I root for America. I like seeing Americans beat other countries, whether it's world wars, soccer matches or the Olympics. I always just like seeing Americans win. And I think lots of Americans feel that way. If you go to a bar and say, hey, the World Tiddlywinks Championship is on. You know, the bartender is going to say, why should I turn that on? You say, look, this is the World Tiddlywinks Championship and it's USA versus Russia in the final. Within five minutes, that whole bar is going to be going, <laughs> USA, USA. And so it's one of those things like people, I think, are inclined to like things like the Olympics and the uh, World Cup. They only happen once every two to four years. There's some, you know, uh, spotlighting a sport you don't usually pay attention to. But for the last couple, really last decade or so, the International Olympic Committee and FIFA have chosen countries that are just flat out inappropriate to host a big international event like this because of atrocious human rights records, because of worker abuses, because of signs that they really couldn't get ready in time. And Sochi, Russia was an absolute embarrassment. We had the issue in Beijing, China, what I think was probably it was the lowest rating games of all time in terms of U.S. viewership. It was going on while China has an active genocide going on. We did our interview with Bob Costas where whatever else you think of Costas, I think he spoke really intelligently and deftly and laid out kind of the moral compromises and the investments that an NBC makes. And I think it said something that by the end of the games in Beijing, Mike Tirico was denouncing the IOC for completely botching the way they handled Russia's state-sponsored organized cheating. The IOC is in the process of ruining the Olympic Games by choosing these autocratic regimes as partners. Now, the next couple of games are going to be in European cities. They're going to be in free countries, and maybe the Olympics can rebound from that. We saw the same thing with FIFA. The previous games were in Russia. No, oh, by the way, that was after the annexation of uh, Crimea. Now it's in Qatar, and it's one of those countries where it always, it, from the very beginning, it seemed like a bizarre choice. Because the World Cup is traditionally played in summer. And, you know, the average temperature in summer in gutter is roughly 104 degrees Fahrenheit. But it's a dry heat, they emphasize. You couldn't play the World Cup in summer. So they had to move it to, originally they said they're going to have all air-conditioned domed stadiums. And then after they won the bid, they said, eh, we can't do that. So we're going to move it to winter. I just, I remember watching past World Cups during summer and getting into it. And I think starting the games the week of Thanksgiving is probably less than ideal scheduling for here in the U.S. Yes, the rest of the world doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving, but good chunk of the rest of the world celebrates Christmas and we're getting into Christmas season as well. There's a reason summer was traditionally the season for the World Cup. Putting it in late fall, early winter is probably going to end up in reduced uh, TV ratings and U.S. interest and, and things like that. It has disrupted the European schedules of all those you know soccer leagues over there. And quite a bit of the sports media that's over there is noticing we're kind of asking, well, I understand why the IOC picked this place and what they get for ignoring the atrocious human rights record, the effort to ban alcohol consumption, the effort to ban any demonstration of gay uh, life in any way, shape or form. Why should we go along with this? We're, the, you know, we're not here to act as propagandists for a regime. Nobody paid us to treat Qatar like it's a normal country. 
And so you're seeing this kind of coverage. And oh, by the way, the Qatar police have already disrupted, I believe, not just one, but two live broadcasts because they were broadcasting something in the background that Qatar didn't want the world to see. Very much like the Chinese police disrupted that Dutch journalist at the Winter Olympics then. Police states going to police state. That's what they do. They cannot turn off those old habits, even with the whole world watching, which is, yes, goes back to that question. Why did the IOC pick Beijing? Why did FIFA pick Qatar? Why did they pick Doha? Well, the answer is because they got paid a lot of money, or at least that's a strong suspicion, because there's no logical reason to put it there. there are, the world has no shortage of normal, nice countries with lots of stadiums. France, Japan, most of Europe, countries that have hosted big events before. And what is going on is this process of these international committees that have always been notoriously like You could have corruption, but if you still put on successful games, people could turn a blind eye to it. I'm not saying they should have, but like it was easier to turn a blind eye to it. The process was working. Everybody was having a good time. Everyone was making their money. Now, the bribery has spurred them to make terrible decisions for their sport. And now they're actually ruining soccer and they're ruining Olympics because nobody wants to feel dirty like they've done something akin to the 1936 Nazi games in Berlin. It's a question of like, I, I want to feel good when I'm watching these international sports competitions. I think when it has something like this, maybe not a huge amount of the audience, but a significant chunk of the audience that was already, you know, maybe not all that interested in soccer, not all that interested in track and field or downhill skiing or something like that. I mean, remember, you know, China it looked like they were next to a nuclear reactor. It was actually a steel plant, but it looked like this hideous post-apocalyptic landscape. The whole thing has been a disaster and mismanaged and it's finally catching up to them. I hope this leads to the IOC and FIFA getting new leadership and a whole culture change. I'm not holding my breath, but I do think this is an inevitable consequence of bad decision-making being allowed to fester and compound until you end up with a disaster like this one. All right, Jim, uh, as our, I guess, bad, also crazy, I think mostly bad, uh, let's go back to the uh, domestic political scene. And a lot of things went wrong for Republicans in the midterm. Some things went right. Uh, we just found out that not only are Republicans taking the House, it's going to be at least 220 seats. And there's optimism and reason to believe there will be one or two more that will eventually drop into the GOP column. But of course, as we've talked about a lot since then, many eyes are shifting to the presidential race in 2024. Now, the Democrats, it seems, are coalescing around Biden. You just had Adam Schiff say it over the weekend. Nancy Pelosi has said it, that since the midterms were not a complete debacle, all of a sudden he's doing a great job and we got to keep him on. Not every Democrat is saying that. He just turned 80. And so a lot of people uh, outside of the relief on the Democratic side of doing better than expected uh, can still see the reality. But here's what the Democrats are also up to, Jim. Because one of the things that they got away with was spending a ton of money in Republican primaries, boosting what they considered the most extreme Republican candidates, not because they wanted them to uh, be in Congress or anywhere else, but because they thought they would be easier to beat. And sadly, that turned out to be right. But it's also extraordinarily cynical because on the one hand, they're saying, these people are dangerous to democracy and the last thing we can do is have them in office after you spent $53 million over the primary cycle trying to get those candidates to win the nominations. And now the Democrats are doing it again. CNN, top Democrats see Republicans' unenthusiastic greeting of Donald Trump's third White House bid with a combination of schadenfreude and perhaps some other German word for terrifying unintended consequences. <laughs> they love seeing the former president struggle, but privately, some tell CNN they worry this could lead to a more difficult 2024 campaign against a younger, fresher Republican. 
i.e. Ron DeSantis. So what's going to happen, and I'm already seeing Lincoln Project people do this, is denigrate the other likely candidates in this race, talking about them as, you know, irrelevant, uh, annoying people that are just going to get in the way of Trump winning the nomination. And so they think Trump is the, the worst thing that's ever happened to this country and that democracy is hanging by a thread. It was just barely saved in the midterms, Jim, and now it's hanging by a thread once again if Donald Trump is to become president. But first, we must nominate him again <laughs> if you're from the Democratic perspective. Greg, for five or six years, we've heard from folks like the Lincoln Project that Donald Trump was a unique menace, a singular, unparalleled, unequaled threat to the American constitutional system, and that no matter where you were on the political spectrum, even if you were a conservative, even if you were a Republican, even if you liked things that Donald Trump was doing as president, you could not accept him. And he had to be stopped and he had to be defeated because he was such an autocrat, because he was such a maniac, because he was such an aspiring dictator, because he wanted to destroy America as we knew it. And now, literally, the message from the Lincoln Project is Ron DeSantis is every bit as bad as Donald Trump. Oh, really? Now, you, to be a good person, never mind being a good Republican, you have to oppose Trump and DeSantis. I, you know, Maybe they'll make an allowance for Larry Hogan, who has no chance of getting the nomination or something like that. An op-ed in the Washington Post a little while ago, making the case for Ron DeSantis over Trump. I, I pretty much predicted this. I think everybody could predict this sort of thing, that the most dangerous Republican in the country is whoever is the leading one who's the best chance of winning the presidency next time. Liberals love John McCain when he was running against George W. Bush. Said, ah, oh, why couldn't Republicans be more like John McCain? And then John McCain ran against Barack Obama. And then John McCain became this elderly, senile, warmongering maniac who had to be destroyed. They think, oh, why couldn't we have somebody who's more reasonable? Somebody who's, you know, like, like Mitt Romney until Mitt Romney became the nominee. And then he was this, you know, the little man from the Monopoly game who was cackling as he gave steelworkers cancer and things like that. The most evil Republican is whoever Republicans like the most now. Now, look, if you're a Trump fan and you listen to this podcast anyway, and you don't like anything I, I Jim Garrity say on Trump. OK, fine. I can get that. I respect that. Having said that, I would kind of ask you, what does Trump get you? if he's elected president, and I think he's very tough to elect as president, that Ron DeSantis doesn't. Look hard at that record in Florida. Look hard at what he's done. Look at the fights he's taken on over COVID-19, taking on Disney, taking on all kinds of really um, high stakes and intense culture war fights, in addition to good economic policies and stuff like that. Take a look at that guy and say, you know, wait, what is Trump giving you that he can't? I think DeSantis gives you everything. And as we saw in Florida, the way he won by 20 points, this is a guy who has a possibility of not eking out 270 electoral votes, but conceivably winning and putting a whole bunch of pretty much every purple state in play. So I look at that and I'm like, well, that makes him, you know, the the better choice. Maybe you see it differently and I can respect that. But I would say look hard. And when we see this, look, I was hoping that at least one of these candidates that Democrats backed in the Republican primaries, Don Bolduc was one. There were a couple of House candidates. Uh, Carrie Lake, they didn't wish support financially, but the Democratic Party in Arizona issued a bunch of press releases designed to knock her opponent in the primary. Um, I was hoping one of these would get elected so you could point to Democrats and say, you idiots, like, you know, Ghoster in Ghostbusters, you've chosen the form of your destructor. <laughs> you know, you chose who you're going to lose to. You can't always predict who's going to be easiest to elect. You can't always predict who's going to be hardest to elect. Learn some humility and let Republicans pick the Republican nominee. Maybe they're going to pick the same crazy one. And oh, by the way, Republican primary voters, you don't have to fall for it every time. When you see Democrats supporting a particular Republican, you can look at that and say, huh, I wonder why they're doing that. 
it's probably not that they think this person will be really likely to lose to this person. They're only going to spend the money if they think this person is hard to elect. And that's likely what we're going to see in Trump versus DeSantis. Does this mean that Trump is impossible to elect? No. Stranger things have happened. People did not think he was going to win in 2016, and he managed to do it. I do think it's tougher for Trump now that he is a known quantity. As I, as I laid out, everybody already knows what they think of Donald Trump. And as we saw in the exit polls of 2022, in every single state, more people feel negatively towards him than they feel positively towards him. Now, again, in a rematch against Biden and the economy is doing lousy, inflation's high, and maybe we'll have a recession and Biden's getting really old. Could Trump win? Yeah, he could. It's not impossible. DeSantis, man, that's the safer bet. That's the easier bet. And that's the one that takes Florida off the map immediately. And it's the one that will freak out the Democrats. So to me, the choice is obvious. I know it's early and you have plenty of time. You can spend some time thinking about it. But if Democrats are going all out to make sure Trump is the nominee, Republicans should notice that and learn some lessons accordingly. When I saw the Jen Rubin column about how DeSantis was just as bad as Trump, it was yesterday or the day before, uh, fantastic reply from uh, our, our friend and listener, Christopher Scalia, who had this uh, whole list of file names that he imagined that Jen Rubin had in her computer. Just as bad as Trump slash Yunkin, just as bad as Trump slash Haley, just as bad as Trump <laughs> slash whoever was going to be the nominee. So uh, it's just, uh, you know, like you said, it's, it's as regular as clockwork, whichever Republican uh, is standing in the way of the Democrats is the greatest threat to, to America that we've ever seen. Because as we know, the only Republicans that Democrats like are the ones that are dead or long retired. I was going to say, when everybody is the greatest threat to democracy, nobody is the greatest threat to democracy. It's the little boy who cried wolf. The pages are getting yellowed in the mm. left lefty journalism playbook. And I guess it's appropriate that they would be yellow in the journalism playbook. But uh, Jim, on that note, uh, have a great travel day. And uh, like we said, we've got these specials coming up, but uh, as people might suspect, we've actually recorded them ahead of time. So we'll actually reconvene on Monday, but we obviously encourage folks to check out those brand new episodes Thursday and Friday and our recap of the midterms, which will be rerunning tomorrow. So happy Thanksgiving to you and I'll see you soon. People kind of nickname Thanksgiving Turkey Day. I really think Wednesday should be nicknamed Travel Day. So have a happy and safe travel day out there. And if you're on Interstate 95, get the heck out of the left lane. <laughs> Jim is coming through. All right. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast. If you don't already, please tell a friend about us as well. Uh, thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Buy Jim's new book, Gathering Five Storms. The uh, accompanying short story is Saving the Devil. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday. And join us again on Wednesday for the next edition of the Three Martini Lunch. You may not believe this, but you know, sometimes you just don't get the whole story from a lot of media coverage. I'm Byron York from The Byron York Show. In my latest episodes, I discuss how a new special counsel is gearing up to investigate former President Trump, and a lot of the evidence in the case is secret. Don't forget to download and subscribe to my daily No Chit Chat podcast. I don't talk about every single issue in the news, just the ones you need to know the most. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.